Holy moly. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Um, I've actually never heard that passage read in mixed company. I think the only thing more awkward than listening to the shenanigans of Genesis chapter 38 would be having actually perpetrated them and then having them read in public about you several thousand years later. All right. So hide the women and children and uh, turn to Genesis chapter 38 and let's walk through this passage of the Bible and see what God has to say to us about ourselves and about the church and about his son. Notice how it starts, Genesis chapter 38, verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. Now, if you were here during the summer when Drew was preaching through the book of Jonah, there was this really cool literary effect where it's a God told Jonah to do something and Jonah didn't want to do it, so he went down to Nineveh, down to a boat, down in the bottom of the boat, and fell down to sleep. And it was a use of the word down, uh, not only in a strictly um, literal sense, but in a metaphorical sense, that when Jonah turned from God, he actually went down. His life descended into a pit. This is the same use of the word. I mean, remember what Judah just did. He just led his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. And then the next line is, Judah went down. Because that's what happens. You can never get away with sin. Right? I mean, you, you, he felt like he got away with it, right? They tricked dad. Um, there's this old saying by um, old preachers. Sin will take you further than you want to go cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. And that's Genesis 38. This is, it covers a 20-year period. I mean, he gets married, has three kids. All three of them reach the age it takes to get married, late teens. This is 20 years of his life's descent into the pit. You cannot commit sin without sin grabbing a hold of you. I mean, we think we can, right? We think that we can play with sin, don't we? We think that we can indulge ourselves and kind of grab a hold of it. But you can't. You cannot grab a hold of sin without it grabbing a hold of you. That's a thing the Bible is trying to show us in this chapter and in lots of other places. It's trying to show us that sin, it's a function of evil and evil has power. And you can't touch it without being stained by it. Without it grabbing a hold of you. And so even when you appear on the surface to be getting away with it. It is in you. And it is working on you. And it is twisting you. And it's shaping you. That's the power of sin. We tend often to think about the pleasure of sin. But in this chapter we're shown that there is more to sin than fun. There is a power. And it is a dark power. And it gets a hold of Judah. And so Judah goes down. We, we know that that's the right use of this word. Because this word is used three times. Once in chapter 37. 
once in chapter 38 and once in chapter 39. And you're supposed to recognize this word all three times so that you can see how it's actually the clue to what's going on in the drama. It's used in chapter 37 when it says that they looked up and saw the Ishmaelites who were going down to Egypt and then they sold Joseph to them. And then in chapter 39 it says Joseph went down to Egypt. So Joseph is sold down into a pit. His life goes down because of sin against him. It destroys his life. But in the middle of it, we're supposed to see how Joseph being sinned against destroys his life. Judah leads that. And Judah can't tear somebody down without his own life getting torn down. That's the three uses of the word. Uh, yarad is the Hebrew word, like radical or whatever. So Yarad, he went down. It, he, he pushed Joseph down and it pushed him down. So he gets married. And quick as a bat, he has three kids. In verse 7, when his oldest son, Ur, reaches the age for marriage, he's probably in his late teens. That's when you would have gotten married. And then we find out that Ur, this oldest son, is wicked. He's a bad dude. And God knows it. And so God puts him to death. Now, before you get so uptight about it, I'm sure you can imagine, if you were God, somebody in the history of creation that you could justify putting to death. We don't know what he did. This is actually called a blank. It's when in the literature it doesn't tell you something, but it doesn't matter to the story. He, did, he was bad in some terrible, horrible way that brought about his death. That's not the point. The point is he's out of the picture now. Don't worry, you'll get to struggle with the tricky knots of wickedness in just a moment, just not with Ur. Now, so he's got this young wife who's now a widow without a child, and that's the most vulnerable place you could be in the ancient Near Eastern culture, whether you're a Jewish person or any other person. And so they had a social safety net. The social safety net for, the un, for a, a woman who's married without a child and husband dies. The social safety net is uh, big families. Next unmarried brother marries you. That was your ticket out of poverty and prostitution, which were the two options to such women several thousand years ago in a very different culture than ours. So Judah says to the next son, all right, dude, time to fulfill your obligation. You have to marry her and produce children. For her and with her. Verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring, so this is the key word in this little, this is how to figure out what's so bad about Onan. Notice in verse 8, offspring, verse 9, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring. So look, if in two verses one word is used three times, you're like, either grow up and write better or maybe you know what you're doing and I should pay attention to this word. Onan deliberately interrupted the sex act explicitly, it says, to prevent Tamar from having a child. And whatever his motive, and we're not entirely clear of his motive, is he moved by a desire to eliminate rivals? He doesn't want a brother with a son because that eats up the inheritance? Or is it just plain old malice? He just doesn't want his brother to in any way have anything in this world. We don't know, but what verse 10 makes crystal clear is that what he's doing is wicked. 
Now this time, it's not a blank, it's a gap. You're supposed to say, now what's so bad about that? Why is that so terrible that God kills him? And there's two reasons, both of which are offensive to us. Both of which are because we have departed so very far from some kind of basic teachings of the Bible. The first one is that marriage is for children. Now, we don't like saying that because we think that marriage is a civil right for your own personal pleasure. But in the Bible, the first thing we're told about marriage is be fruitful and multiply. And the second thing we're told about marriage is be fruitful and multiply. And the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth thing, it comes up all over the place. That a fundamental purpose of marriage, not the only one, but one of the most essential non-negotiables is for children. So just if you're curious, when people come to me and ask if, if I will do their wedding, one of the questions I ask is, are you willing to have children? If you're not, I will not marry you. Because the church has always held this position. Marriage is for children. And God does not approve of systematic, complete contraception. Not every sex act has to be open to marriage, but every marriage has to be open to children. In fact, the Hebrew phrase about what he did, it emphasizes that it was every single occasion of sex with his wife. It was not just once or twice. Now, are there exceptions? Absolutely. Are there people who get married and there's such profound wounding and brokenness or physical wounding or whatever that they can't have children? Yes. Are there exceptions? Yes. There's exceptions to basically every rule in life. But the exception doesn't make a new way of living for the vast majority of the world. When we're thinking about marriage, we have to start with where the Bible starts. Are there exceptions? Absolutely. I I know of people who've been so wounded by abuse that it is not at all possible for them to bring children into a marriage. I know of people who are living in such dangerous, catastrophic places that they, they really shouldn't be bringing children into them. Into that place. This, there's lots of exceptions, but here's the deal. Selfishness is not an exception. And a desire for a bigger house and a nice lifestyle is not an exception. Now, this is hard for us. It's hard for us to imagine somebody steadfastly, obstinately choosing barrenness as wicked. But it is. Now, that's the first issue. It's hard for us. We don't like that view of marriage. The second reason this is so wicked is something else you had to have paid attention to going on in Genesis up to this moment. God has repeatedly promised Onan's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, that through their children, their offspring, he's going to rescue the world. Remember, the first time this promise is made is to Eve in the garden, right? Through your seed... I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. Then the tiny hinge that the whole drama of Scripture turns on is Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, this is Onan's great-great-grandfather. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The word blessed is used five times in those three verses. And the word curse is used five times ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit up until that moment. God's plan to reverse the brokenness that Adam and Eve brought into the world is through Abraham and his family and most critically through their offspring. Look, so, so look, not just in chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, but look at verse 7. God, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, that's the word, I'm going to rescue the universe. And then in chapter 15, he does it again in verse 5. In chapter 22, verse 17, he does it again. And in chapter 26, verse 4, he tells Abraham's son Isaac, hey, this promise is for you. It's through your offspring that I'm going to rescue the whole world. I'm blessing you because through you, I'm going to bless the world. And then in chapter 32, verse 12, he tells it to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, which is Onan's grandfather. And it goes on and on and on. And we find verses like chapter 35, verse 11. Where God says to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your body. You, my gift to you is a nation, but embedded in that gift is a command to produce a nation. Right? This is how gifts work, right? Gifts, often they come to us, but within them is a responsibility. And once you see that that is the plot line of Genesis, it's the plot line of the whole Bible. It's that through this chosen nation, God is going to fix this thing. Once you see that, then you see when the last remaining son of Judah refuses to have a child, he has steadfastly knowingly set himself up, not just against a brother he doesn't like, but against God and God's plan to rescue the world. That's the tension of Genesis 38. God is up to rescuing the world, and Ona says, oh no, I refuse to be a part of that. Now, is the literature, am I overreading it? No. They knew how to write literature. All of that is built into this. And once you see that, once you see that he is fighting God, he is defying God's plan to bless the families of the earth, you can get it. Now, you can get why God puts him to death. Now, that's hard for us. Because we're in this reactionary moment where we're adjusting our understanding of God by redefining his love and compassion and tolerance so that there is no room for his law and his holiness and his justice. So we're taking our values and we're absorbing the Bible into it and refusing to let the Bible absorb our values into the Bible. And you have a choice when you read the Bible. Do you redefine it by your value system or do you let it cast a vision of life that redefines your values? And so this is a really hard passage for us, but Scripture is God's Word. It is the primary way that God teaches us who we are and who He is and what's real and what's true and what's good. And we need to let the Bible show us what's right and true and good and beautiful. And so when we get to verse 11, and Judah tells Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up. We say, oh, okay, here's that law again. Because once again, now we've got a twice-widowed woman without children. 
She's got to be taken care of because God is compassionate and loving and is unwilling for a woman to just get lost in this kind of, kind of social situation. So Judah's going to do the right thing. But remember, Judah is 20 years into the grips of sin. And when you do bad things, you become increasingly a bad person. That's the power of sin. So the narrator tells us the truth. For Judah feared that Shelah would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. He's not going to give his third and only remaining son. Why? Because he thinks that she's like um, a curse. You know, two other sons have married her and they died. And it says very clearly what his motive is. It uses one word. He was afraid. Now, here's another moment where you've got to be a person who pays close attention to the Bible. Because in the book of Genesis, fear, nine out of ten times, is bad. When you come across the word fear in the book of Genesis, almost every time, you need to hear the bad music start. This is not going to end well. In the book of Genesis, whenever strength and courage are shown... Good things happen. When fear shows up and timidity shows up, it leads to immoral behavior. And so when we're told that Judah's acting out of fear to the careful reader, that's a uh-oh. Because fear in Genesis is like fear in Star Wars. In the words of Yoda, fear is the path to the dark side. Did I get that right? So then we get to verse 12, a long time afterward. This is critical for what follows. Your Bible might translate it in the course of time. If it does, that's weak. Scratch it out. It's a very long time, a long time afterwards. Tamar has been lingering long enough to see Sheila has grown up. He's gone through puberty. We're past the age of marriage. She now has evidence and proof that she's basically been put in prison, that he has done to Tamar what he did to Joseph. He's done to his daughter-in-law what he did as an adolescent to his foolish little brother. Sin will take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will turn you into a man who abuses women. So here she is sequestered in her father's house in widow's clothing, engaged to Sheila. But the wedding is never going to happen. And she's stuck. And like many undocumented citizens in America right now, there is no legal way forward for her. None. And God's plan to rescue the world is stalled out. Judah has only one son. And he's not making any babies. Because he's not getting married. That's the plot line at this point. So Tamar takes action. It's sort of like the moment in the book of Esther where up until then, every verb used with Esther, here every verb used with Tamar, has been action against her. And in this moment, she develops agency. And for the first time, we see a woman in this story rise up and with agency, she takes action. Verse 14. 
She took off her widow's garment, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat at the entrance in Naim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. This is not the action of a bitter woman. Be careful how you read this. She sets herself up there, and Judah, in verse 15, takes the bait. Remember, he's been in mourning a long time. He's just going to a big party. He's been drinking a lot. He looks over, and he saw her, and he thought she was a prostitute. He had on beer goggles, and she had covered her face, and he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she, like a businesswoman, drives a hard bargain. What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she thought, I've heard that before. You've said to me once before, I will send you a young, literally, kid from my flock. So she's no fool. <laughs> she says, okay, prove it. Give me a pledge, some earnest money, some collateral. And he said, well, what do you want? And she knew that she was playing a life and death game. And she said, your signet and your cord and your staff in your hand. You're, see, the signet, it, it was this cylinder of clay that had like his uh, coat of arms or whatever engraved on it. And it, he would wear it as a cord around his neck. And so um, when he was, he was a wealthy man, he had a lot of power. That's what the staff represented, his authority, his power. This was like his credit card. This was his signature. This was like everybody carried around with them their own personal notary. He would roll that over a document and it was proof that it was him. And um, he's drunk with um, alcohol and lust. And so he offers her every credit card in his pocket and his driver's license for a moment of pleasure. Like, the sin not only takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, costs more than you want to pay, it makes you dumb. <laughs> so she, she, she gives it to him. He gives it to her, and so they have sex, and she gets pregnant. Because that was her goal. Because that's the point of the plot. There have to be children in this family. She's the only one fighting for God's way forward. And, and there was no way forward for her. None. You've got to see that. You've got to see that in that culture, she was absolutely stuck in a dead end. She knows that she's become a part of Abraham's family. She knows this. She's like Ruth. Your people will be my people. Your, your God will be my God. I'm sticking with this family. I'm because in this family is the blessing of God and the hope of the world. She knows what God is doing to save the world. And she knows that having children is how she is supposed to participate in God's redemption of all things. And it is a risky game. She knows also that the punishment for sexual immorality is death. And so she has to get irrefutable evidence of the identity of the father of the child-to-be. Because there is no DNA testing at this time. But there is a signet and a cord and a staff. And sure enough, she gets pregnant and Judah sends his friend back with the payment, the young goat. Notice verse 21. And he asked them in the place, where's the cult prostitute? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. And they are right. There was never a prostitute there. She was never acting like a prostitute. She was never giving sex for money. She had no intention of taking the money. This was not an act of prostitution. It was an act of justice. What she wanted was the fulfillment of the meaning of marriage. She wants not only what she is owed because of a promise. She wants what she's promised because she's owed it. She wants justice. 
And I know this is sticky and messy, but that's what this is. And we, and we see it in the conclusion because in the conclusion, God blesses her with twins replacing Judah's dead two sons. He gets grandsons to replace them. And from one of these twins come David. And from David comes Jesus. And it becomes a blessing in Israel to say, like the women said to Ruth, may you be like Tamar. Now notice what happens next. When it becomes obvious that Tamar's pregnant, somebody tells Judah. Look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. And she's pregnant because of it. And Judah said, in Hebrew, two words. It takes a bunch of words for us to translate them into English. But Hebrew has a way of compounding words all up into one. Without hesitation. Without batting an eye. Word number one, bring her out. It's all one word. Word number two, burn her. Out, burn. That's his response. What a jerk. It's worse than he did to Joseph. This is terrible. Do you see what sin is doing? How it's twisting him. Without even investigating the matter, he responds hastily and high-handedly with a brutal sentence of death. But Tamar, what a remarkable woman. I mean, remember how the book of Genesis portrays fear leading to bad, but strength and courage leads to good? Watch Tamar in this moment. She's being dragged to her burning. The Bible is remarkable for its Sparse narratives. Now, any of you being unjustly dragged to your burning. I mean, how do you respond in these moments? When you're utterly powerless. Notice her response. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. She is in mortal jeopardy. And she calmly and skillfully makes her defense. This is courage. This is strength. By the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And with those words, she launches a missile at Judah. But it's the next phrase that detonates the warhead. Please identify whose these are. In Hebrew, haker na. Please identify. Only used one other time in the Bible. There's other ways to say please identify. But this way, this phrase, it's only used up one other time. And Judah was there. He's heard this phrase only one other time in the story. Do you know when it was? Chapter 37, verse 31. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat. And dip the robe in blood. One other time, a goat and a piece of clothing have been used to perpetrate a deceit. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Haker na. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And these words... 
jar Judah's memory of his sin. Remember I told you the whole chapter is about his sin. It's about what he did to Joseph and the way it's wrecking his life. This is like the moment where Nathan says to David, thou art the man. Please identify. And he remembers how he deceived his father. And he thought he got away with it, but you never get away with it. When you commit sin, it grabs hold of you. You can't play with it. Sin's not a toy. For 20 years, Judah has been in the grip of evil. And like his sons, he has set himself against God's good and kind and gracious gift to renew the world. And he's treated his son and his his own daughter-in-law like she's a prostitute. So the chapter is about sin. But when it comes to sin, Judah's sin, my sin, your sin, We have never seen the full picture until we see God's love. Even when our life is devastated by our sins, stained by it, and ruined by it. Because notice what happens next. Verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. And the next time we meet Judah, do you know where it is? It's chapter 44. And as we'll see in a few weeks, he's amazing. He's totally different. He's changed. He is profoundly transformed. When we meet him in chapter 44, he is filled with warmth and compassion and tenderness. And he offers his life for others instead of throwing others under the bus to save his life. You see, to Judah, when we first meet him in the Bible, when he starts out his life, he is a jerk. He is a hard and calloused man. In chapter 37, he talks his brothers into selling Joseph into slavery. Then he goes off and marries a Canaanite, despite knowing this is fundamentally against God's will. And then when his sons die and his wife dies, in contrast to to his father in chapter 37, who cannot stop grieving, there's not a single mention of grief on Judah's part. In chapter 38, he's become incapable of grieving, even over the life of his two sons, even over the death of his wife. And finally, there's a terrible moment when he summarily orders his own daughter-in-law to be burned alive. That's the Judah that starts out life. But then when we get to him in chapter 44, he's not anywhere near that. You can't see the man of 44 in the man of 38. God has done such a work in him by the time he gets to 44 that it's like a totally new person. He is overwhelmingly transformed. And this is one of the great themes of Genesis. God can change you. Change is possible. Even in your middle age. Even in your senior age. God can take all of the junk in you. He can change you. He can transform you. 
You see, God has not only chosen this family, he has bound himself to them. He created them and he is committed to working in them and bending them and needing them so that not only will he bring through them the gift, the life of the world, but he will turn them into people who can be for the life of the world. And it's a deep work. And it's a terribly painful work. God produces in Judah a beauty and character that was not there in his youth. And he can do it in you and me. At your baptism, God adopted you into his family. He chose you. He set you apart to be in his church, to be the way in which he brings blessing and healing and salvation to the world. And maybe like Judah, you're not doing a lot of that. Maybe you don't want to be in God's family. Maybe you didn't pick your baptism. Your parents did. Tough luck, butternut. Maybe you don't want to be in his church. Maybe you don't like his way of saving the world. Maybe you don't like what he's calling you to be. But God loves you. He loves you too much to let that be the end of your story. And he will follow you all the way down into the pit. And he will give you the grace of exposing your sin and leading you to repentance. Judah in chapter 38 repents, but in that moment, he did not become tender and kind and great. That was just the start. It was just the ticket. It was just the beginning of his transformation that we see showing up in chapter 44. And if you will take God's hand, And you will repent. And you will say like Judah. I've sinned. You know he's the first person in the Bible. That we're told repents. And he flowers into a beautiful man. And it's not too late for you. You can too. If you will accept God's hand when he breaks you over your sin and convicts you of it and shows it to you, he will begin transforming you into such a remarkable person that you will live for the life of the world. Please open your heart and your body and your mind to God. Stop thinking that sin is a toy. God is the creator of all things. He loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son. That whoever turns to him in that kind of belief that is true trusting and true submission, he will have everlasting life. That's what God offers you. That's what God was offering Judah in the moment that Tamar said, I care not. It was God's hand to him. And it's God's hand to you when your sin is exposed. And it's God's hand to me. And if we will turn and take it and repent of our sins, he can change us into something we cannot imagine. Into something that there's not even a glimpse of now. Turn in faith to Christ. Repent of your sins. And you will have life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great love. Thank you for your mercy. In Christ's name. Amen.